Either Schwitzer? Oh, yeah. It's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five. Four. We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Good afternoon, Peter. I'm just picking up here the, uh, the scary ABC headlined story about house prices. Uh, with house prices in sharpest drops since the GFC and will continue to trend lower. So that's how the ABC is uh, reporting today's uh, core logic data, which showed a fall uh, in Sydney of uh, 1.4% in November, yeah. meaning that Sydney prices from peak to trough are now down by 9.5% and almost on par with the previous record of 9.6% between 1989 and 1991. So... This housing market sounds pretty scary if you listen to the ABC, Peter. We're going to be talking to Margaret Lomas about that, amongst other things. Exactly, and I hope Margaret gives us a more measured view on what's going on. Now, remember, you know, I personally thought that you know, it's possible we could fall 15 or 20%, depending on how bad the economy is, how bad stock markets go and that sort of stuff. Um, and, that, and that would be a pretty big drop. I know, but the, the worst-case scenario out there is a 40% fall, and the, and the 40% fall believers would love a headline like that. So let's just try and put some rational discussion around what's going on in Sydney's house price market. Uh, and we're going to do that with Margaret Lamas. Later in the show, we'll be talking to Tony Nash, the founder of Booktopia, a great business. He's created a great online business, a real rival to Amazon. And they're um, doing a bit of crowdfunding, looking for about $10 million. Now, that's a lovely term, crowdfunding, Peter. Would you like to... Uh Explain it. Explain it. <laughs> well, well, basically, it's just we go out to the crowd and say, we have a really good project here. Would you like to you know, put some money in? If you do, you get some ownership in it. And ultimately, you've got ownership in the business. And, and you might get some money in terms of dividends or you might get some money in case they actually float the thing, go on the market. So it's a, it's a, good, it's a good way for the little guy, the little girl or gal. Can you say that? Well, Margaret will tell me if I can say it or not. Um, yeah, in terms of getting a part of a business. Well, it'd be interesting to know why a pretty well-known name, Booktopia, you know, they've got a great little business yeah. and uh, a lot of people use them, um, why they would access the crown funding market. Maybe mm. they know something that uh, that we haven't come across, but yeah. we're interested to find out what Tony's got to say. Without a doubt. Without, but let's, let's go to the housing the challenge. The housing, you're doing Burst and bubble, is that right? I'm not looking forward to reading Fairfax tomorrow. If the ABC can scare you, whoa, boy, the Fairfax can d- double it. Okay, so a lady who knows a little bit about real estate is Margaret Lomas from Destiny Financial, and she's joining us on the line. Hi, Margaret. Hi there. Are you scared, Margaret? Uh-huh. Please. I'm getting a little bit over this crash talk. I don't know about you guys. Uh, most definitely. I'm being trolled on Twitter for, for saying you know, objective kind of things that maybe it's not going to fall 40%. Maybe it's like 10 to 15 or 15 to 20, but they don't like that. They want a real big crash. They do want a big crash. And, you know, it depends on which day you're going to read the news as to whether we're about to have a crash or whether we're going to be okay and the property market is just going to be stable. Um, there are experts out there who are believing that 2019 will be stable, 
and then for Sydney at least, property will be on the rise again in 2020, and then you get other people who are saying that we're definitely going for a big crash. And even the reports at the moment with the 9% fall off the off the peak, we have to put that into perspective and remember that the peak was pretty peaked. I mean, mm. it was pretty high. Um, it was, you know, more like a tidal wave. So if you say we're going to crash from the tidal wave, possibly, but are we going to have a crash in the big scheme of things? I don't think so. I think we've got to be very objective and consider that the only thing which makes property grow is demand. And it's reasonable to think that there'll be, that it's unreasonable to think that, that there'll suddenly be no demand in the, in the entire Australian market and no demand in Sydney. Yeah. And I think that's what needs to happen for a, a crash to occur. And we have to keep this in perspective as well. Let, let's just say, looking at the headline there, was it Paul, the biggest fall in house prices since the GFC? Is that, is that the 9% number or the one-month number? Um, I think that's the, the uh, 9.5% number from peak to trough. Yeah. But, uh, so, so, and we've got to remember this. After GFC, interest rates were really aggressively cut. Then they started sneaking up again, and they got, they got a little bit worried, so they cut them again. And then five years ago, that's when house prices started to really crank up. So we're really compa- we're not really comparing a- a- against a fair comparison. You know, like I think I, I, w- I want to see a-, a fairer comparison when I look at the biggest fall since the GFC. Well, it, was, mm. it makes sense that this is this is the time when you should see a big fall because prices have risen by so much. Yeah. And look, I think you're right about a fair comparison. And I don't think in any of the falls and peaks we have, you can make those comparisons because every time we go through these things, there are different drivers of them. And, you know, I I can't even count the number of times that I've been through this kind of thing before. People saying it's all going to crash and all the worries and the big headlines. I mean, you know, long before we even heard of the term GFC, there was the 80s. And um, (laughs) as you alluded earlier, where prices stagnated and then it even fell in the early part of the 80s before they then escalated by 39% from 87 to 89. Then the early 1990s brought the recession where property prices didn't do much at all. And then fast forward to the GFC in 2007, which put a real damper on property prices, although interestingly, Sydney hadn't really moved much since 2003 at that time, and all that did was extend the Sydney slump by a further four years. And so if you think about it, what's really happening now is what always happens, but for different reasons, a few years of rising prices and then stabilisation or correction. And remember, though, that only Sydney and Melbourne have had any kind of boom. This is the other thing. And I know we're talking about Sydney prices today, but we do have to consider the whole market. Sydney and Melbourne did have a boom. Other capital cities have either been chugging along at a slow but acceptable Mm. pace, while we've got Perth and Darwin. They've been hit hard since their own booms of the early part of the century. Uh, Margaret, why do you think there's so much interest to talk the market down? I mean, is it just uh, perhaps a... Uh, we aren't, aren't as many people in the press, perhaps, who owns properties who used to. I'm just trying to understand Young why, journalists haven't got a house. <laughs> why there's so much interest in talking about this as a, as a crash? Oh, I reckon it's just got to be headlines. I mean, if you, I remember years ago, if you were a property journalist, it usually meant that you had 
some kind of experience in property. Maybe you're a property investor as well as a, a journalist or you certainly had a fair amount of education around property. But these days, anybody can write an article about property. And I guess to someone who's 24, then it probably seems like a crash, doesn't it? Because hmm. <laughs> they haven't been through anything. So it, it's all about the headlines. We love to talk about the boom and the big headlines there. We love to talk about the crash. But I can't imagine a headline that just said, property's okay, nobody needs to worry. <laughs> I mean, that's not a headline, is no, it? No, but also, Margaret, I think the, the, the bottom line for me is this. If I was, as an economist, was tipping unemployment was going to go from 5% to 8% and a recession was just around the corner, I'd be on, I'd be on side with the crashes. I, I think we'd be, house prices would fall over 20%. Huh. But uh-huh. the opposite is the case. This economy of yeah. ours is doing really well. We're growing exactly. over 3% and unemployment's coming down. So they haven't got the economic reason for it. And so... That, I think, is probably the reason why I'm saying we have to be measured about this. And most, like economists, like the guys who hang out at BIS, Oxford Economics, and I think the big shrapnel guys have been around for a long time. That's why Oxford Economics bought them. You know, they're not, they're not you know, talking 20% plus uh, house price falls in Sydney and Melbourne. No, they're not. And and everything you're saying all funnels into that demand that I talked about earlier. You know, people being in employment and having unemployment trending down, having the economy beginning to trend up and get back to those growth levels that we're comfortable at, all that funnels down into demand. It will create ongoing demand. Will it create a huge demand? No, because we don't have the other fundamentals for that big demand that create a boom. But we don't have the lack of demand that is created by more people becoming unemployed and therefore they can't afford to buy. And an economy that's travelling so badly that people just shut up shop and don't do anything because they're frightened and they want to keep their cash under the bed instead. We So, so we don't have any of those things. Therefore, demand isn't going to be impacted and we don't exactly have an oversupply either. And so going back to those very fundamentals of economics, then we still have demand which exists. We don't have an oversupply. We have some supply and some areas are a little oversupplied, like some of those apartment markets. But in the main, we're not quite building enough new dwellings in most of our capital cities for the demand that is due to come. Mm. And so if it comes down to a question of straight fundamental economics, I can't see it either, I, 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 unless it's going to be panic and, and it could be it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, these headlines, if they scream any louder and any more dire consequences, maybe that will create the panic that's required to see a bigger crash. Yeah, and I, unfortunately, I think the, the economics will stop that panic. But there was a very interesting auction over the weekend in Sydney. It was a, a semi-overlooking University of New South Wales, and it, ha- it had totally untouched, and it was uh, on the market, and... Um, no one was bidding. Apparently, the auctioneer was so frustrated. And we see it at auctions anyway. No, everyone was standing around and no one was bidding. And eventually, he, he put the, uh, the owner's bid in of $1.1 million, right? So mm-hmm. it actually crept up to about $1.25 or something like that. And the reserve actually was $1.3. So effectively, mm-hmm. it was like $50,000 short of what the reserve was. So if we imagine that the owner's 
you know, were a little bit optimistic, as most owners are. That's not a big drop from what they expected. They didn't get their, their price, but it wasn't like a 10% difference. It was like about a point. Five or one percent different, or something like that. And I think for for lots of properties in, in Sydney and Melbourne, that it, people are not going to get their unrealistic reserves. Mm. But those unrealistic, unrealistic reserves are probably ten or fifteen percent more than what they were the year before. And we have to be careful about not reading that as being a drop in the market, because who's to say that that reserve was realistic in the first place? Yeah. It, who's to say that that was anything like recent sales? What people tend to do when they set a reserve is they tend to set a reserve which is a little higher than what the same house in, in, in the same street or the next street sold for, because everybody always thinks, well, if that house sold two months ago, mine should be worth that little more. So it's it's human nature for auctioneers and real estate agents to set each reserve that little bit higher than what the last one went for. So in reality, the, the property that you're talking about probably sold for the same as what other properties, the same as that property, have sold for. And it was probably fair market value for what it was and not a drop at all. Um, and if that's how many of the journalists are reading that market, which they often are, they're reading it from whether or not properties are meeting their reserve, I think that's a bad way to read a market, you can only read what a market's doing by summing up all the recent sales that look exactly the same in an area. And it, it's not always read that way. Margaret, I want to come in a moment to uh, asking you about some specifics about potentially areas and types of houses that you actually like. But just the sort of other high-level sort of thing that's over the top of the property market at the moment is the proposed changes to negative gearing should Bill Shorten become Australia's 31st Prime Minister. So mm -hmm. in sort of a general sense, how are you advising clients at the moment in the lead up to that? Do you think that's a, it's, it's actually a time to, given the potential grandfathering, this is potentially a time to be thinking about negative gearing? Yeah, look, it, I think it sounds worse than it will be and the outcome does depend on the model that they adopt, which still hasn't really been communicated by the Labor Party yet probably because they still don't know for sure themselves mm -hmm. exactly how it's going to work. In fact, I'm still convinced that most of the people in the Labor Party don't actually know what negative gearing is, and here they are they making it, all these decisions about it. Yeah, they think it's wrong. something wrong with their clutch in their car, negative gearing. Yeah, I think so. Now, if they adopt the same model that was adopted last time negative gearing was removed, it means that investors will be able to claim expenses on a property up to the amount of income it earns, mm -hmm. after which... Any excess will be carried forward to the following year and then accumulated. Now, I did a little bit of modelling or some brief calculations on a property worth around 450000 given that that's actually the price range that most property investors move in, Australia-wide, mm -hmm. um, with a return between 45 and 5%. I inflated the rent each year by 3% and assuming a principal and interest payment to reduce the debt. Now, after about five to seven years, the rent actually starts to exceed the expenses and from then on the carried forward losses can be utilised to make sure that no tax is paid on mm -hmm. any of the excess income. I took that out over 15 years and if the property was then sold, the balance of the carried forward losses offset some of that gain. And the actual overall difference was that the investor netted around 20% less in gain over a 15-year period. Now, that's not a huge difference. And I guess the biggest impact for removing negative gearing is those first few years, which is when you're not having all of your losses offset through a tax break, 
you know, only up to the income that you're earning on the property and you're going to have to be paying out of your mm-hmm. own pocket to get there. Um, and that's why getting a good yield on property is going to be important to help you stay in the market. But I think that in terms of what will happen if we do get a Labor government is that I think, I don't think people will sell because it'll be a time to keep because mm-hmm. if you're mm-hmm. under the old scheme, yep. you're grandfathered, you don't want to lose those benefits. But I do think a lot of people will suddenly rush in and try to get in and buy a property. And you might see a little bit of a, you know, a change in prices in those few months up until the decision's made to implement the new policy. Yeah, they haven't actually announced the start date, um, as I understand it, Margaret. But you, you've got to guess it probably would be if they do get elected in the first half, it'll be perhaps the start of the next financial year at some stage when they can get the legislation through if they have to do that. So um, I would think so. I, yeah. I would think they'll move quickly on it. But, you know, they've funded so many of their other promises through the savings they perceive that they'll make by so, removing negative gearing. So bottom line, you're not actually seeing it perhaps because of the carry forward is maybe such a big thing. But are you suggesting to anyone at the moment uh, that they actually should think about buying a property before it comes in? Do you think that's going to sort of yeah. create a bit of instant... Oh a bit of demand absolutely and and i think that's what we'll see happen i think that's a natural consequence of these things you know when they were announcing that they were going to remove the first homeowners grant we saw a lot of first homeowners suddenly get in the market very quickly and most of them paid probably 10 to fifteen thousand more than they should have completely assuming the extra grant that they got in the way of overpaying on properties that they lost a little bit on straight mm. after they settled. So uh, I think the same thing will happen. And I think the most important thing for investors is to be careful through that time that you don't panic to the point where you start to pay too much yeah. because then you will end up with that negative equity or at least less equity than you'd like when the property price settles. Now, al- also, Margaret, over the years you've often said that if you buy a new property where negative gearing would still stand and as long as you hold it for as long as you, you hold it for, that negative gearing will apply because it will still be a new property. When you come to mm. sell it, it's an existing property, so the next seller won't get negative gearing benefits. Mm. But, but you've often pointed out that the, the depreciation benefits of buying a newer uh, property are, are very good for investors as well. Well, they are, but I always have also said that it doesn't have to be new. Because in the first five years, those depreciation benefits are very similar anyway. So it doesn't have to be a brand new property. And I'd be careful about those brand new properties because I think they're going to sell at well over the market value. We'll see the spruikers all come out again. Mm. They'll all be selling the new properties. They'll be building in all sorts of commissions and people will Mm. pay more to get a new property because they'll perceive that the tax benefits are worth it when they won't be. And at the other end, and people never think about getting out, do they? They never ever think about getting in. Yeah. And at the other end, when they get out, they're going to pay for that by having a property that they paid too much for, um, and it's not going to work out so well for them. I think it's very an important time for investors to consider the whole argument of buying property, not just the great benefits in that first year or two. I, I, and, sorry, Margaret, go on. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's it. it. <laughs> I, 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 I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I've been making the generalisation. I'd just like to know whether you agree or not that – when you put together all of the proposed changes for Labor, they they eventually, if we t- t- take out the sort of the the gold rush before the the actual legislation comes in, Labor is trying to make it better for home buyers as opposed to home sellers, and I, my figuring is eventually less investors 
will turn up to say an auction for an investment prop for for an existing property. Is that a fair generalisation? Maybe, but I think it's flawed. I think it's a flawed approach because while it may take investors out of the market and make it better for first home buyers, first home buyers are only first home buyers ever once, hmm. and that's when they buy their first home. They then quickly become second home buyers. And they will then be in a significantly worse position for many reasons. So the fact that they don't have an opportunity to negatively gear themselves, the fact that there's not going to be demand for the property that they've bought, so they're not going to gain equity as quickly, which gives them that the equity that they need to become investors themselves and start to prepare for their own financial future. You think about the number of people who use Negative gearing and property investment as a retirement plan, there's a significant number of them who do so, and I see them becoming younger and younger all the time. So people in their late 20s and early 30s who are wanting to buy property as an investment, that it won't be attractive to anyone, including them. So they might get that tiny benefit at the outset of being able to get into a property because it's not being pushed up in terms of its price, but then when it doesn't grow in value for them because all of those people have been taken out of the market, there's a significant downside and a lot of unintended consequences that, are, you know, I, we haven't even got time on this particular podcast to get into all of those unintended consequences, which are going to be far worse than any benefit that gets created by taking away negative gearing. And finally, Margaret, just to put you on the spot uh, for a couple of areas or that you're watching at the moment where you sort of encourage investors to have a look at? Yeah, look, I think if you're a speculator, and that doesn't mean that if you want to take risks, but if you're a speculator, there are some um, suburbs in Perth at the moment that I think are worthwhile really considering are starting to see reduced days on the market in areas like Bibra Lake to the south mm -hmm. um, and up in the north, up around uh, Kingsley and those areas. They're well-priced properties in the mid-300s to early fours with good rental returns, and I think they'll sit flat for a little bit longer, but while there's no not a lot of demand in that market, it's the best time to negotiate a good price on someone who really wants to get out and then just sit with a good rent return and wait for that recovery, which will come, I think, in the next couple of years. So I'm really liking that. Of course, you know, I'm always going to talk about Brisbane and some of the suburbs in Brisbane. I think as the creep starts to go move up toward the Sunshine Coast and we see the big health precincts as well as the university at Petrie, which has a medical school and some 30,000 jobs will be created over a 10-year period there, as well as a railway line that's going straight into the university. Those far northern suburbs of Brisbane are going to be the recipient, I think, of a lot more demand and they'll make some good buying as well. And let's not ignore Geelong. We've got some some mm -hmm. suburbs in Geelong that are bordering more expensive suburbs. For example, East Geelong, with a median price of about 630000 is on the exact border of a suburb called Whittington, which has a median price of about 320000 We'll start to see that flow-on effect happening. So there's some good opportunity and some good buying in and around Geelong. Okay, Margaret, as always, thanks for joining us on the program. And uh, when we get worried about property, we'll give you a call again. Thank you. Thanks, that, Margaret. That's Margaret Lomas from Destiny Financial. Now, coming up after the break, we're going to be talking to the founder of a very, very successful online business called Booktobia. His name is Tony Nash, coming up after the break. And now. 
a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzy. Well, we're back after the break, I promise. And we always make the point that our headline rate, 3.89%, is exactly the same as our comparison rate because there are no fees or whatever that other lenders throw at you. So don't be afraid to give um, Adrian a call, um, Switzer Home Loans. Um, and you can go on, web, on the web, website to see any more details. Um, and now I now want to introduce a very, very, I think very successful Australian entrepreneur, guy by the name of Tony Nash, who started a business called Booktopia, which I'm sure most of you have heard about. And Tony's um, going to the market, an unusual market, the crowdfunding market. Paul, what do you think of the crowdfunding market? I haven't had too much experience firsthand, Peter, no. but um, I'm a bit surprised why a company as well-known as Booktopia would mm. go there, but let's find out. Exactly. So, Tony Nash, welcome to the program. Thank you. So, Tony, uh, explain to our listeners how you started Booktopia. It was started as a side project back in 2004 in the evenings. Uh, we were, and I, when I say we, I've been in business with my brother, my sister and brother-in-law now for 20 years. And so it was a side project started in the evenings on a budget of $10 per day because um, we had done a job for Angus and Robertson as part of our web marketing consultancy to get them to the top of Google and we were introduced to the book industry through them and they outsourced their website and all of their fulfillment to a company in Sydney who, who did it all for them and they did it for 80 bookstores as well. So we approached them about um, seeing if they would introduce us to their other customers to get them all to the top of Google and they weren't interested. Um, so then we inquired how does it all work and they had a system that they could build a website within 10 minutes with a million books on there and if you sold anything, you got paid a commission. And, uh, and I said, wow, that sounds really interesting. And they said, yeah, but no internet-only business has made anything out of it. It's all been off the back of a traditional bookshop that wanted a website. So I went away from that meeting with my brother and I said, I'd, I'd like to give that book thing a bit of a go. That was our vision and business plan. I would like to give that book thing a bit of a go. So Tony, you, you knew nothing about books when you started. No. And so you've learned all the um, this from, from scratch and from obviously advising people about, about the website. Mm -hmm. um, so what's made Booktopia so successful? I mean, what, what, what's it about what you do in terms of how you bring books to the market mm -hmm. uh, online that uh, have made you so, so big in Australia? It's very simple from my perspective today, but back in the day, it wasn't as clear. But the one thing that we have done every single day, and this is an important message to all entrepreneurs and all businesses, we have asked every day, what is best for our customers? And it was amazing to me to enter the book industry, how many people weren't asking that question. For example, publishers mm -hmm. will tell you what we want to publish, when we'll publish it, and how much in Australia we're going to charge you to have that privilege to read that product. I could not believe having come from other industries, that that was their mentality. But by focusing on the customers... We'll produce it, you'll read it, right? <laughs> right. And, and so we could see that people were wanting, like from the books that we were ordering, for example, romance. Mm -hmm. We were selling a lot of romance. Now, a lot of bookshops, romance, 
Mills and Boone and beyond, you know, um, bit, books with, bit with down market, books with perceived to be down market, with kilts, with yeah. men with kilts and bare chests on the front didn't, you know, didn't empower normal booksellers. So, so we could see we're selling a lot of it. So that was what our, what our uh, research was showing us. So we stocked more of it and we didn't care. We just saw the units turning over. And so that's why even to the point, at one point I could see that if we stocked really expensive, lavish books, that they were turning over. And I could see in bookshops, they kept them up the top or in a secure cabinet because they didn't want anyone to touch the $300 Heston Blumenthal Big Fat Duck Cookbook. We had set them turning over all the time because we held them in stock. It was just a stocked item. So it was a very different philosophy around, around the book business. And by doing that consistently for that many, that many years, we've now ended up where we are today. So that's very much about sort of thinking about what, or letting your customer tell you what you're going to stock. Is that sort of the way you've Yeah, across it? many things. But I'll give you another example. So when we were in Lane Cove and we were in 4,000 square metres across two properties, we were, we were busting out of that, that, those premises and we needed to go somewhere else. So I called Australia Post, who our, our logistics partner, and I, I asked them, where's your major hub in Sydney? Like, if we were right next to their major hub, instead of being in Lane Cove, mm-hmm. we could get later pickups faster into their system. Why? Because it's better for our customers. So they said to me, it's in Chalora. Now, you know, I'm over 50 years old. You live in a city all your life. You hear a suburb of your name. Where the really? hell is that anyway? There used to be a drive-in at Chalora. That's the only reason I know Chalora. There you go. That's <laughs> right. It was the big, biggest drive-in in Sydney, wasn't yeah, it? Was that right? The twin drive. Twin drive. So, so what happened you was... Are showing, you we're got, showing our age, as you say. So Google Maps, you look it up. All oh, right, so it's near, it's near Rookwood Cemetery. It's near um, Sydney Olympic Park. That's where we're moving. Why? Because it was best for our customers. It wasn't best for us. Uh, you know, as I said, uh, I'm in a family company. We mostly live closer towards Lane Cove. It was not in our best interest to move. Why have you been good at the internet? Because Booktopia is an internet business. Mm. How come you've been good and a lot of other people haven't been? Yeah, so my background has been in software. Uh, but more importantly, my brother-in-law's background was an IBM software engineer. So we both understood software um, and we had built internet software from, uh, from the late 90s. We also, when that business was failing under the dot-com um, crash, the late 90s, early 2000s, we morphed into this internet marketing consultancy work uh, because um, people needed us to drive traffic to their website. So we quickly started doing that. So we became internet marketing experts. Before I started... Uh, before we started the chat software business, which was what we were doing with the internet software, we had a recruitment company, which I focus on the internet. So I've literally been involved in internet businesses since 96. So all of that combined, I think, it gave us a lot of the confidence around how to drive traffic, how to manage software. The only thing that was missing was the product, um, all the books, and the logistics, which we didn't know. But the thing I liked about books is I could see very early on it was a very tough business. You're talking about 27 million active titles, which is big databases. So you've got to, you've got to know how to, for them to respond quickly. You're going to have, um, you've got to know how to run all of those um, Google ad campaigns and do them effectively. These are all the things that you had to have to be successful. Now, I know Paul's very interested in your idea of using crowdfunding to raise possibly up to $10 million. So I'm sure he wants to grill you over, over the, the ins and outs of it all. So just give us a, a rundown of, of this, this crowdfunding um, um, initiative that you've now mounted. 
Sure. So, so look, crowdfunding needs to be split into two terms. So there's crowdfunding, which mm -hmm. thinking about using Kickstarter and some of these other websites because you want to do something special. Um, this is equity crowdfunding. So equity mm -hmm. crowdfunding is literally uh, some legislation that was passed uh, in the last year that enables um, companies to be able to sell their shares through through the crowd. And in our case, uh, it was appealing to us because uh, we, we tried to IPO our business in 2016. We had worked with um, the larger um, legal firms and brokers to make that happen. And just the month that we were about to you know, get ready to list, Amazon they were announced they were coming to the market. And so that all fell through. We regrouped. And the thing that we said right from the beginning in terms of in terms of the IPO was it's going to be great because our customers can buy shares in Booktopia. But what we discovered along the way is actually the brokers and all the fundies couldn't care less about sending emails out to our customers to buy shares. It was all sophisticated investors and that's that model. So um, not knowing that this legislation was going to get passed uh, and now that it has, we feel that we can, um, we can potentially trailblaze another way that companies can get funding into a business and not necessarily go cap in hand to, to a, a fund manager who's managing other people's money or to, to the, the, the tr traditional models. You can actually call on your, your customers. So this really allows potentially your customers to contribute it was as little as probably five hundred or a thousand dollars. Two fifty actually. Two hundred and fifty dollars is the minimum, mm -hmm. and become a shareholder in Booktopia, mm -hmm, and they'll have all the normal sort of regulation around the company. It's, it's no difference in terms of how you operate. It just is a really a different way to raise capital. Is that essentially what you're saying? That's correct. Yeah. So, so we're we're looking at a minimum of three million, mm -hmm. uh, up to ten million, which is the law. Actually, you can't raise under this equity crowdfunding. You can't raise any more than ten million right, at the moment. Okay. Uh, in America, it's 50 million US, but in Australia, it's 10 million Australian, and and so we are reaching out to the the Australians to see whether they would be interested in investing, and it's been it's been fun. And is that offer open yet, or is yes, last week actually. Last week, and, so, and they go to it finishes on the 14th of right. February. Right, and how do sorry, and they go to where do they go to to access? Uh, They'll go to equitize.com. Equitize.com. Yeah, the, slash uh, invest. Slash invest. Is and the there'll name be of all of the, all of the, um, the crowdfunding uh, projects or uh, capital raises that are happening right now. Ours is under um, offer information statement. There are others that right. are different, okay. different crowdfunding. And finally, you mentioned Amazon before. I'd just like to, because um, that's a very hot topic, obviously, in the retailing business and lots of our uh, listeners are shareholders and some of the retailers. So... You've worked pretty closely with Amazon one way, and since they haven't really, in fact, you're, they almost complement what you do. Would you like to explain that a, a little bit in terms of your relationship with Amazon and what, how you think that might play out in a broader retailing sense? It's, it's quite, I mean, it's quite a broad discussion. I'll start from here. So first of all, when Amazon first was coming to Australia, we, were, uh, we turned over 80.9 80, 80 million mm -hmm. in, in two, FY16. In FY18, two years later, we're up to 113.9 million with Amazon arriving and then having now been here for one year. So uh, still a lot of growth in this, high double-digit yep. growth in our business. The, the interesting thing is with Amazon is that today uh, they, they make more money out of um, the marketplace having somebody sell something to somebody else 
and they take their commission on the way mm -hmm. through, which now uh, in, it's various different uh, categories, but in Europe and in North America, it's 23%. So they make more money. So they're sort of a middleman between the retailer and, uh, and the customer, is that? Yeah, so, so the thing is, is that they, they, all the things where they do make money, like Amazon Web mm -hmm. Services, uh, and, I, and I'll, be, I'll disclose here, we use Amazon yep. Web Services. Yep. So even though you might say they're a competitor, no, that we use them for our, for our websites. Amazon Web Services, uh, the Marketplace, um, Audible.com, Kindle, uh, Amazon Prime, the, all the digital content, the, the movie content they're creating. That's where they're making all their money. They make nothing really out of their logistics. So it's, it's just an interesting you know, dynamic that goes on with the Amazon business. From our perspective though, Amazon to us is everything to everyone. And as we look around the world and see who's being successful in other markets, mm -hmm. what we can see is that if you are one thing to one vertical market and do that really well, those companies have continued to prosper where Amazon's around. So, so we've regrouped even further in terms of we're going to really focus on books and we're going to do that extremely well. So the message you'd have to Australian retailers is if you get really good at what you're doing, you shouldn't be worried about Amazon. Is that sort of what you think is a, is a takeout for Australian retailers? Yes, I think that's, that, um, that's actually a, a thousands-year-old sure. sales <laughs> principle about being a knowledge expert uh, so people can rely on you. And they, they, they may not necessarily just go to Amazon. Amazon will be a $10 billion company in Australia at some point. They, they don't have to rush. They can take their time. But I still think that's a gift to all the other retailers in Australia to, you know, whatever you feel where you're, you're coming up short, continue to hunker down and, and, and focus on your, on your key skills and connect with customers. And so when they come into your store or if you're selling online, try and create as much value for them as possible. Thinking about your experience with um, Booktopia, what would you tell other retailers to um, be out there doing at the moment? A lot of people who are retailers, um, where I, where I um, get to see uh, them um, fret or fear that it's all passing them by. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because with, with Booktopia, uh, people say that it's lucky you got in early. Um, but in 2004, they said, you're too late. Mm. And so I go to conferences and I get to speak in, and speak to people in the audience. And they, they, um, they are worried that they're missing the boat. But the thing is, is that in 2050, 2018, 2019 is going to be the early days. So people have just got to reframe their thinking around, you know, where it's at. It's still very much in the early years of the internet, and there's still a lot of opportunities out there. And people just need to be as as um, as uh, not get not get as freaked out and yep. as and as uh, and okay. as worried as they as they necessarily could. Okay, Tony. Thanks for coming on the program. Wish you all luck with the crowdfunding. Thanks, Peter. Thanks. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. 
How many people spend money they earned to buy things they don't want to impress people that they don't like? So stick with Switzer and get rich. Where are my teeth? Okay, and we should always point out our headline rate for our home loans is exactly the same as our comparison rate, 3.89%. Now, this is a, a, a time for Q&A, Paul. Stephen has come with a question. I have an SMSF, which has relied heavily on franking credits. I have some decisions to make about rebalancing my shareholding if and when Labor gets elected. What happens to the franking credits on retained profits that are not given to shareholders each year? Are they accumulated by the company? And what can they do with them? Is it likely that these could be distributed to shareholders before the end of the year in the case of the big banks? It's a really good question, Paul. No, it is a good question. And just to be very clear, the proposed change won't have any impact on the on the franking credits a company has and their ability to carry them forward. So. Mm. The company doesn't distribute the franking credits, it can carry them forward as long as they want. So yep. it has no impact there at all. The, ch- the short change is pretty straightforward. All it is is to deny the refunding of excess credits that a pensioner or, or self-managed super-funded pension or other low-rate taxpayers get and can't use as a tax offset. That's the only part of the change. But it is does... we. Uh, uh, it does raise some issues because the franking credits are of no value to a company. Yeah. Right? But um, I guess he's asking you, uh, or some people might be asking, how, how come they've got? Yeah. So what, what, what the franking credits represent is each dollar of tax the company has paid. So every yep. time the dollar pays company tax, the Australian tax office, mm. it gets a dollar of franking credits. Mm. And if it doesn't, and if, and if it distributes, most companies don't have a 100% payout ratio. In other words, they pay out less of their dividends. Mm. Then they actually make retained earnings earnings to build their balance sheet. And so over time, they tend to accumulate surplus franking credits. Mm. And that's exactly most companies keep a a franking balance account. And uh, it's a start, it's just, it's it's not a, you won't find it in their PL balance sheet, but sometimes hidden away in the financial statements, there'll be a disclosure to what it is. Mm. Uh, And And some have some really big ones. And some, like companies like BHP and, uh, have really big ones. So what we are seeing at the moment is that companies that have got surplus capital are saying, well, hang on, well, we know this change may come in. We know it could hurt some of our shareholders. And if we've got some surplus capital and we think it's time to actually give some of that capital back, let's do it on a basis that's actually going to be a benefit to some of our shareholders. And so that's why we are seeing things like special dividends and off-market buybacks happen. Yeah. You know, if we just had a big one from Rio, we're in the second last week of a big one off-market buyback from BHP. BHP's also announced a special dividend, rumoured that the Woolworths will be doing an off-market buyback. These things are all going to happen between now and the 30th of June. Mm. Before uh, before Bill yep. becomes PM. And I think, um, you know, there wouldn't be a board in Australia that wasn't doing its job and sitting down in the next couple of months and saying, well, hang on... Uh, how much capital have we got? Is it the right amount for our business? And if we've got some surplus capital, do we have any surplus franking credits? And maybe we should think about actually um, paying a, di- a special dividend or doing an off-market buyback or bringing forward the timing of, uh, of our dividend payment. I think shareholders, in the ne- assuming that that uh, yeah, the policy stays the way it is and we go towards an election and he gets elected, I think companies across Australia will be looking forward at, at types of actions they can take between now and the 30th of June mm. 
to pay dividends. Yeah, and that's the, the story I wrote for the Switzer Report today, Paul, that, in fact, Bill, Bill Shorten could actually help share prices in many ways because two things happen. Um, when they, they yeah. um, do buybacks, there's less shares on yep. the stock market and up goes the share price. And then people have money in their hands. What do they do? Probably go out and buy more shares. So Bill could end up being a, a good thing for this the stock actually, market. You're right, Peter. It's actually quite a bull a bull force for the Australian share market mm. up until the 30th of June. Yeah. Um, go for it, Bill. Go for it, Bill. <laughs> I don't think some of our uh, our listeners are going our to be Our franking happy. credits uh, yeah. listeners hate Bill. But, but it, yeah. it's interesting at our income conference last week in Sydney and Melbourne, it's, it is the number one issue out there. Oh. And uh, it's obviously getting so much resonance and, and people are very, very concerned. So, oh, yeah. yeah. And, and I, I do believe um, the Senate will make a, a cap be introduced, so some it might be able to get a, a a refund up to twenty thousand or something like that. It, it might be lower, but I, I, I met one guy who's actually getting a hundred thousand dollars worth of franking credits, and he knows he's not going to be helped. He, he he'll, he'll probably be able to claim up to, to the, whatever the cap is, but uh, but he he designed his um, retirement based on the rules. And that's the way it was. All right, here's one from Susan Paul. If we lose the rebate on – another question – on yeah, franking credits right, right, well, lots in of that as of the 1st of 2019, uh, what happens to the last years if, as in most cases, we do not submit tax returns to December 19 or even January 2020? Will we still get the rebate? Yeah, the good news, it won't impact the rebate okay. this year. So all it, so, what, even it's, you, a, it's a prospective change, not retrospective. So from the 1st of July, assuming they get the legislation through – any dividend received after the 1st of July won't be eligible, but dividends received up until that time will be eligible. And so if you don't submit your annual return until you know November or December next year or even into 2020, it won't impact the previous financial year. So you're okay. Okay. Next one is this one from June. Hi, Peter. You may need to pass this on to one of the other experts. We are uh, a two-director corporate SMSF. Lucky I'm here in a model. Yeah, you are the expert. Of- Both current in pension and accumulation mode, thanks to the imposed caps. Can you please tell me whether there any capital losses in our self-managed super fund can be utilised by our estate against capital profits on the closure of the self-managed super fund at our demise and payment of funds out as per the wills? We acknowledge, of course, that current rules may change before this event occurs. Let's hope the event's a long way off. Uh, given the regular messing about with superannuation and SMS rules in particular, Paul? Look, the, um, the bad news is you, you know, losses in one entity can't be used by another entity. Okay. So if, you're, if upon your demise your self-value super fund has some unrealised capital losses or has some capital losses you've never been able to use, uh, your executors or whoever gets the money won't be able to use them. So it's it's strictly, it's strictly in the entity. And of course, the self-managed super fund is a different entity from you, a different tax entity, and so it stays within the entity. So, yeah, again, makes the point. If within, uh, just remember with with capital gains and capital losses, you can only apply losses against capital gains, mm. but you can carry the loss forward indefinitely. So, look, if you do have losses uh, at the end of the year, sometimes it's worthwhile just looking through your different assets and. And thinking about whether you should take some action just to try to use up sometimes any capital losses you've got. Yeah, because the, the part of this SMSF in accumulation 
And they the can use happens. the losses there well, they? while they're in accumulation. Yeah. But when they go to pension, because they've become a zero percent taxpayer, yeah. it, they've gone. So yeah. it's 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 look, it swings and roundabouts whether you'd bother to do anything. If you're going to stay in the part in accumulation for some time, mm. if you've got losses, then don't forget about them and think about mm. some potentially assets that might be in a problem. And Paul, you know, I always like to think of other questions that people might be thinking as you give the answer. Uh, for that, for that type of retiree who may well have scooped 400000 out of their pension, out of their super fund because they, the 1.6 cap stopped them. That 400000 they put into accumulation mode where they're paying 15% mm-hmm. on their earnings, that's where tax losses can be used. Yeah, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's one other thing while we're talking about tax and, uh, and just relates to uh, the discussion we had with Margaret Lomas mm-hmm. earlier and... Uh, yeah, talking about negative gearing, I don't know if you picked up, as you said, the model's not 100% certain, but uh, what I hadn't appreciated until Margaret said it was you might be able to carry forward the losses on negative gearing for from one year to the next. Yes, which would be much better than being just denied. Yeah. So it, it's, it's probably, you know... As Time Labor came out and told us. Yeah, the trouble is we don't have the detail and... Um, and this is why some of these things could be interesting and, in fact, not as bad as they might make out to be. Yeah. But uh, as, as Margaret says, that these, the mechanism sometimes, the detail gets lost in the debate and the headline will actually hmm. have the impact on prices anyhow. Exactly. Well, I taught um, the MP, Thistlewaite, who's actually uh, doing the, the, the hard yards for labour on negative gearing. I'll get him on my TV program and we'll, get him, and we'll find out in this program as well. Well, it's, um, I mean, I think it's a good time also. This is the last week of Parliament, Peter, but yeah. the, the reason I'm pointing that out is that uh, if, I, if there is to be a change in any of the labour policies around negative gearing or franking credits, I reckon it's going to happen not this week but in the next couple of yeah, weeks. Yes, just before that. Christmas, and once they get into Christmas... It's too late. We're almost into the election season uh, hmm. and they will come back next year. So uh, let's just see, not this week, but maybe the next couple of weeks, if there is a change, it's when they'll... Well, if you get I that reckon re- they'll, 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 they'll not leak it out, but they'll make a, a small announcement. Okay, well, if you get it right, Paul, I'll call you the political Nostradamus of the Switzerland yeah. show. Okay, that's the show for this week, Paul. Thanks for joining us. And for you all listening, thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week. <laughs>